Hello, this is the next in a series of talks on Ezra. Now, we had a little bit of a technical hitch on Sunday, so this is not a recording live from our Sunday service. This is recorded a little bit later. Theoretically, it ought to be better, but who knows? But it also means that I'm going to look more in the camera, so if that is disturbing for you, you can look away now. Lots of you will know that I'm not on social media for lots of reasons, but the more I hear about what's going on and the more I see other medias, I'm particularly pleased to be not on social media at the moment. There seems to be so much division. Nationally, politically, we see tribes that are angry with each other and score points off each other and make enemies of the other community. And tragically, and I find it really distressing, that is something that is crept into Christian life and into the church. It seems to me that people hold views more and more strongly and over the last two or three years perhaps become more and more um, angry with others and feeling that we have more and more enemies. And Ezra talks about enemies as indeed does a lot of the Bible. That word enemies is used a lot. And I want to explore that theme uh, as we go through the next part of Ezra. Now, if you've been watching these uh, videos before, you'll know that Ezra is a book in the Old Testament. It's written by a guy called Ezra, although he's not yet appeared in the story. It's about the return to the temple of God that had been ransacked and, and demolished. It's about the return of God's people after a period in exile. It has echoes and resonances with our time of returning to worship. We've looked in previous weeks how they built the altar as the first thing, the first part of their worship. And we looked at that in previous studies if you want to find that. We talked about how they did that despite their fear of the peoples around them. And we're going to pick it up uh, in chapter 4, where even though in chapter 3, the last bit we looked at was about the, the weeping and, and, the, and the joy and the mixture of emotions, we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 4. We read these words. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, and we're going to hear what they did when they'd heard in a few moments. But I want to reflect on this word, enemies. Why did they have enemies? What was it that could have possibly caused people to be against them? As I thought about this, I think there are a number of reasons, possibly, why the people who were already in the land... So if you remember, the, 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 the people of God had been diminished into just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they had been exiled, deported, moved hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been flattened, the temple had been flattened, but others had moved in and built their homes. And we're now talking 40, 50, 60 years later. So they've established their home. And suddenly these people from who used to live there are returning. And that's an experience we see all over the world today where people who've had to leave as refugees come back to a land, come back to their parents' land, come back to their grandparents' land. So why might the people who had stayed there, why, my, why, my, why might some of them see them as enemies? I want to suggest a number of reasons. Firstly, they were possibly threatened by a loss of influence. Suddenly, there's a whole group of people, 40, 50,000 people coming into the region. 
whatever roles the original people had there would be diminished. There might have been a loss of opportunity. They might have felt that their jobs were under threat. They might have felt that the ear of the emperor was under threat. Remember that Cyrus had sent this decree that the people could rebuild the temple. And maybe these people felt overlooked and unvalued and, and, and had lost control. Here was the emperor uh, sending people back and not consulting them and they perhaps felt unvalued. So there's all kinds of ways in which they might have felt threatened. There would also have been a challenge to their behaviours. Very likely the majority of the people who had remained had mixed the worship of God from the Old Testament with the other pagan religions of the empire. They had joined the two together. So they weren't solely and purely keeping the law as it was in the Old Testament. Whereas these people who were returning would be more devout they would have um, kept the law in its entirety and they would perhaps have implied and felt that those who had remained were, were unclean spiritually, that, that hadn't been holy enough. So those who were remaining would have felt threatened. Here are these holy people, here are these righteous people coming and showing us up, uh, maybe threatening us because we worship not only uh, the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, not only Yahweh, but we worship the other gods as well. We, we've accommodated everything to, to survive. And maybe they felt uh, embarrassed or angry or ashamed or, 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 or maybe they felt that their way was the best and here were these old-fashioned people showing them a different way. They were perhaps jealous of joy. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes really happy people can be irritating. And we just read that they had been shouting aloud in joy as well as weeping. These were demonstrable people, and that could have irritated those who are watching. It may be that they felt this true worship of God was an offence to their gods. This idea that they were building a temple and an altar to the creator of God, to the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one and only God that they may have found that that offended, perhaps it didn't offend them, but it offended the people they were working for and they were worried about the other religions in the community. So there are all kinds of reasons why they may have felt uh, that they were enemies. And as I reflected on enemies and looked at it throughout the Bible, it seems to me that there are two types of enemy. There are those who we believe are our enemies. It's our perception that they're our enemies. But if we're really honest, they may not know that. They may not realise. And it, perhaps you've sometimes experienced the time when you've suddenly realised somebody doesn't like you. And you think, oh, I had no idea. I don't know what I'd done. So one set of enemies are the people we believe are enemies. And the second set are those who actually indisputably treat us as enemies. It's not in our mind. It's not what we feel. It's what they do. So let's just explore, if you don't mind, those two ideas for a few moments. So those who we believe are enemies. In other words, it's, it's our attitude to them. We are angry with them because perhaps we feel they have taken our influence. They get listened to more. It may be at work. It may be in the family that somebody comes in who has the ear of the boss or is perceived by us to be more popular in the family or in our friendship group. And we feel, if we're absolutely honest, and perhaps we daren't own these words, but we feel a little bit jealous. 
we feel that we're not as important as we used to be. It may be that we actually resent sections of society that we come in and we think are taking our jobs. And we hear that. We heard that right at the beginning of the Bible and the way the um, people of God were enslaved in Egypt thousands of years ago. And we hear it now around the whole debate over Brexit, even around the whole debate over lorry drivers, which is right in the news right now. We're threatened. And these are hard things to own up to and to admit. But is there any sense in which we feel and resent other communities, people who are different to us, who we feel take our opportunities? Maybe even within church, we feel that person gets asked to do things. That person uh, gets a profile and we don't and we resent them. It may be that we resent people who challenge our behavior. Perhaps they say to us, if you're a Christian and you do that, Perhaps they uh, object to our morality. Perhaps they expose our hypocrisy or perhaps they just are angry by the way we feel, uh, the way we behave and they want us to be different. It may be that they're just happy people and it irritates us. It may be that we feel their lifestyle or their beliefs offend our God. And it saddens me to see so many Christians use the language of offense. And they talk about Jesus being offended. They talk about God being offended. It's not actually a language that Jesus uses. But there are lots of Christians who are upset on God's behalf about things that are going on in our world. And we make enemies of people who have a different set of values or a different lifestyle or a different way of living. And Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And that's hard, isn't it? Because when we perceive somebody as an enemy, for all the reasons that we might have outlined or for other reasons, whether it's personal of an individual or whether it's to do with a group or a type of person, it's hard when Jesus says to forgive, to let go, and not to decide on other people's motives or to judge their intentions. And what about those who treat us as enemies? Because I think all of us will have experienced people who don't like us. And I, if you're like me, I love to be liked. But I find, and I find it very, very painful that there are people in, in life who don't like me. And one of the painful parts of that is the often consequence of that is they will leave the church. And I grieve and I, I, I find it very difficult. So what about those who intentionally hurt us? Those who blame us for things. Those who resent us for things. And I know it's easy to lump everybody, but we need to try and separate the real from the projected. So these are people who really do resent us because they may feel we've taken their influence. Many of us have been discriminated against because of our age, because of our gender, because of our race, because of our color, because of our school, because of our background. 
And people have taken against us because they feel we have taken their opportunities. And it may be that there are people who feel our morality, our integrity is a challenge to their desire to live perhaps amorally, to perhaps to live without the same standards of truth, without the same standards of self-control, without the same standards of generosity and financial sharing and accountability. And they're angry with us for living differently because it exposes and highlights their situation. And they take it out on us with difficult and painful words or actions. And maybe there are people who resent us for the peace and joy that we found in Jesus. Or maybe there are people who feel that our love for Jesus and our talk of Jesus and perhaps our commitment to Jesus as the way, the truth and the life, that they feel that's offensive in a multicultural society. They feel it's wrong for us to nail our colours to one saviour. And those who treat us as enemies intentionally express blame or anger. And it's painful and lots of us have experienced that. They may exclude or discriminate against us. They may cause hurt or damage. And Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's really difficult, isn't it? We're not able to show the question and answer session that we had after the evening service, but one of the questions that somebody asked is, what do you pray for your enemy? And I would suggest that the four things that came to mind immediately was we, we want to firstly pray for them that their heart would change and whatever anger and bitterness they have would dissolve. We want to pray that their behaviours of hurt and damage would not uh, actually hurt or damage others. We want to pray that the God would reveal himself to them and that they would know his love and his care. And we want to pray that they would be blessed, that they would know God's goodness and that they would know God with them. Martin Luther King who many of us admire for his actions against his enemies, says these words, I'm certain that Jesus understood the difficulty inherent in the act of loving one's enemy. He never joined the ranks of those who talk glibly about the easiness of the moral life. He realized that every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. And he goes on, so when Jesus said, love your enemy, he was not unmindful of its stringent qualities, yet he meant every word of it. Our responsibility as Christians is to discover the meaning of this command and seek passionately to live it out in our daily lives. The measure and mark of a Christian is to love our enemies. So those we believe are our enemies, we perhaps need to stop blaming it's not actually what they're doing to us. It's what we feel about them, and we need to stop. We need to step back. We need to try to understand their difference and their perspective and why it is they do things in a way that pushes our buttons but is not intentional from their point of view. We need to let go of resentment. And that's part of what it means to forgive, is to just let it go. We need to treat folks with an open mind. 
and where people are treating us as enemies, where they are hurting us, we choose to act in their best interest. That's what it means to love our enemies. It's not the feeling. It's not that we like them. It's not that we try to acknowledge and pretend they're not enemies. It's that we, we just choose to do what is best for them. And we pray for them. But we don't necessarily trust them. And we're going to see in a moment, as we go back to this story in Ezra, that they didn't trust their enemies. And we do need to understand the difference between loving an enemy and trusting an enemy. If they're an enemy, they are probably, by definition, untrustworthy to us. And the command to love is not the command to trust. Therefore, it may be that we need to avoid them. One of the things that are interesting as I've been going through John's gospel is the number of times when they pick up stones to kill or, or attack Jesus, he leaves. He crosses to the other side of the lake. He walks away from them. Only once at the end does he allow them to take him at the point that is appointed in Gethsemane. Prior to that, he avoids that. And it's perfectly right to get out of situations and relationships that are damaging the early church grew because whenever persecution came, the people of God moved to the next place. Jesus, when he was sending out the disciples, he told them that if you're not accepted in a village, shake the dust off your feet and leave. To love our enemies is not to allow them to hurt us. It is not to retaliate, but it is sometimes to avoid and to walk away if that is at all possible. Walter Wink says this, love of enemies has for our time become the litmus test of authentic Christian faith. In other words, as we look on the internet and we look at all the debate and the anger and the different tribes and the different sides, as we look at all the debate in theology about which doctrine is right, the mark of a real Christian is not the ability to believe all the things I believe or you believe. It is not the ability to be right. It is to love our enemies. That is the mark, the distinctive, the revolutionary mark of a disciple of Jesus. One of the things that Jesus says that no other religion could cope with, love your enemies. So I want to pose some questions of reflection and I'm going to go back into Ezra in a moment or two. Question, first question is this, who are the people we have made our enemies because we blame them? And how might we change our attitude and behavior? And the second question, who are the people who have chosen to treat us as enemies? And how might we change our attitude and behavior? And we come back at the end, I want to just draw your attention. I think it's helpful to be honest with ourselves and say, this person I have been treating as an enemy, but they haven't actually been treating me as an enemy. And this person has acted against me, and we need to understand the difference. So let's go back and look at Ezra, and we're going to pick it up again. Chapter 4, verse 2. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel, that's the guy with the great name who was leading the people at this time, and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of uh, this guy, king of Israel, Assyria, who brought us here. So they offer to help, but the perception is they've got a different motive because they are enemies. 
And here's where you see that Zerubbabel doesn't trust them. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family answered. Notice it's a team decision. It's a joint decision. I really passionately believe that the best decisions are made corporately by a leadership team or even by a church meeting. One person is very rarely the sole authority of God's word. He says, you have no part with us in the building of the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King of Cyrus, the King of Persia, commanded us. Why do they refuse the help? Well, possibly, quite possibly, they suspected that these enemies would sabotage the project. Probably, too, there was a danger of confusion over purpose, that these, uh, a different agenda, a different reason would, would cause a compromise in the way the temple was to be designed and the way it was to be built, and they didn't want to allow that to happen. I think, too, there was an element in which they wanted to say the cost and the sacrifice of building this temple is to be ours alone. It is to be done by the people of God. And we, in our culture, perhaps there are times when it's costly for the church to do things. And we think, well, we could get a grant from here or money from there. And if we just fill in the criteria for this trust, we could be helped. And the leadership over the years has, in the large, rejected that idea and only joined and applied for trusts when there is an exact alignment in values. Because we felt that what we needed to do had to be our cost and our sacrifice. It had to be for them and for us. It's us depending on God. And although people would say, let me help you, we'll put our, our shoulders... To... No. If this is our thing to do, then it's our thing to do. And the peoples then, we learn, these enemies, verse 4, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go to the building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this goes on for a long time, and the rest of the book uncovers and explains this process. So this is like a, a, a heading for the rest of the book. Discouragement and fear. What do we mean by discouragement? There'll be times when we experience it, and it's good to identify it perhaps as coming from an enemy. The discouragement of criticism, of someone who's constantly telling us we're doing it wrong. The discouragement of folks highlighting how it's going to be too difficult, how these are the obstacles, you won't be able to do it because of this. And negativity, the, high, the uh, discouragement of folks who put obstacles, who deliberately put things in the way that stop us serving God. The discouragement of those who bring distracting temptations. Here, why don't you do this? Why don't you have this? who allure us with things were not what God intended for us to do. The distraction of the enticement to quit. Why don't you give up? Why do you keep going with that? And in our workplace and in our community life and our walk with Jesus, there may be people who unconsciously or consciously discourage, who criticize, who make it difficult, who tempt. And then they used fear. Fear of aggression, fear of humiliation, fear of isolation, fear of disadvantage. And these are still fears that we feel. And maybe for some of us, as living for Jesus in our place of work, we experience these things. 
And lastly, and we're going to look at this in the next time in Ezra, verse 6, they then lodged an accusation. And these are hundreds of years old, these words, but it could be in our, in our time, couldn't it? And I know there are many in our church who have experienced the pain of false accusation. We'll come back to that next time. So what can we do in conclusion? As we sum up all that we've talked about with enemies, the first thing is to check our enemies are real and not imagined. Now, we are commanded to love our enemies, whatever, but actually it is helpful to work out whether they really are enemies or whether we have made them enemies needlessly. And the second thing is to check that we haven't made enemies, not because of our walk with Jesus, but just because we've behaved badly. Because if we've made enemies because we gossip or we're untruthful or we're greedy or we are hypocritical in some other way, then we have to put that right. We have to stop making enemies. And then we need to perhaps recognize the source of discouragement or fear. Where, is the, where are these things coming from? And to acknowledge before God that we've discovered that we have enemies. Maybe spiritually we have enemies. And we identify them. And that then leads us to pray, Lord, help me to resist. Lord, give me your grace. Lord, give me insight. Help me to avoid. Help me to forgive. Help me, in whatever way, deal with that. And when we're able to acknowledge before God that we have enemies, then we can seek his strength and his help. And we seek support from others. We don't hold it alone. We tell others. And finally, we choose to commit and to persevere. There is a decision to be made that says, I will keep going in spite of my enemies, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the fear, in spite of the discouragement, I choose Jesus. I choose to follow the cross. I choose the way of God in, for my life. And there is no doubt that if we choose to follow Jesus, there will be opposition. Whether it's tangible in the form of humans who we identify as op opposing us, or whether it's spiritual, we make enemies. And at that point, there's a decision that says, Lord, with your strength, with the power of your spirit, I choose to keep going. Will you help me overcome? Will you help me persevere? Let's pray together. Lord, you know all our experiences of enemies, where we are hurt, where we are fearful, where we are discouraged. We bring it all to you. We name before you those who we feel are enemies. We pray for them. Those who are angry with us, those who seek to harm us and hurt us, we pray for them. We pray for those who we are angry with and we ask you to help us to forgive them. And where there is discouragement and fear, Jesus, we ask you now by your spirit to come and bring a confidence that you are with us and a, a resolve to keep going.
Help us to overcome, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.